The following podcast contains advertisements. If you prefer a podcast without advertisements, you can sign up for our ad-free version at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. You'll get rid of the ads and we'll be very grateful. Human rights law allows you to, to sort of think about, okay, here I am, you know, moderating this forum in digital space and I want, you know, maximum numbers of people to have access to it, to not be silenced on the platform. And there is some content that clearly is aimed, you know, and some of this is the kind of trolling and, you know, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, racism that may be directed against particular users that may be tolerable under the First Amendment, meaning the government couldn't restrict it. And yet, in the context of online space, it's an interference with the right of others to participate in that space. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, May 27th, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on our online information ecosystem. Way back at the beginning of this podcast series, Evelyn Dueck and I invited David Kay on the show to talk about the role of international human rights law in content moderation. David is a clinical professor of law at the University of California, Irvine, and when we first spoke to him, he was also the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression. It's been a year and a half since then, and in the intervening time, David's vision of international human rights law or IHRL, as it's often called, as a guiding force for content moderation has become mainstream. So we asked him back on the show to discuss the increasingly important role played by IHRL in content moderation and what it really means in practice. We also talked about the rise of digital authoritarianism around the world and what international law and leading democracies can do about it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 27th, the arrival of international human rights law in content moderation. David, thank you so much for coming on. We thought it would be a good time to chat with you because there's been renewed attention on the idea of using international human rights law in content moderation, and you really are the world expert on this. It's not just the academic community that's talking about it more seriously now, but it's also something that journalists are raising with me more and more as I talk to them, which really just shows how much it's breaking through. We'll get into why that's happening in a little bit, but I think it's worth going right back to the beginning. International human rights law's moment in the sun is the culmination of a lot of work, which was really spearheaded by you. I know you always insist you were building on the work of others, which of course is true, but your work as United Nations Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Expression was, I think it's fair to say, critical in in getting us to this point. So congratulations and and thank you. Let's start with first principles. When you say platforms should incorporate international human rights law standards in how they think about content moderation, what do you mean? Yeah, so Evelyn and Quinta, thank you for having me. It's great to be back. So, you know, actually, when I think of the platforms and human rights, I don't think of it only in the context of uh, of content moderation. I mean, I really do think of the whole panoply of implications that the platforms have both for their users and for the broader public. And, and so that means, you know, on the one hand, something I know that we could, we could talk a little bit about later, 
you know, platforms are under tremendous pressure from governments in particular to, you know, take down content that those governments don't like. And so I actually started in this space by thinking about something that that actually organizations like the Global Network Initiative, which is actually a board that I chair right now, um, had been thinking about for years, which is how do the platforms think about responding to government demands that are inconsistent with fundamental human rights norms? And it just became clearer over time that that same kind of evaluation would be important for, for the platforms to undertake when they're dealing with their own you know, moderation, their own governance uh, of their platforms. And part of that is because, and this happened really quickly, you know, when, when the initial kind of human rights and platforms conversation began like in 2006, 2007, 2008, you know, the, the platforms weren't nearly as dominant as they are today. But, but now when you have this situation where the companies are so large and so dominant in, in certain markets, my view was they should start to incorporate human rights into the way they think about that governance. And so it was sort of a human rights, you know, began as a, you know, human rights from, from the perspective of the outside pressure to human rights in the context of governance. So I mean, you asked specifically what I mean by it. I mean, what I mean by you know, human rights being used as a, you know, as a tool for content moderation is, you know, is maybe we could think of it in two ways. One is basically a framework for thinking about problems of content moderation. And the human rights framework is one that recognizes, like in a very robust way, that individuals have the right to freedom of expression but it also recognizes a kind of framework for limitation where that expression interferes with the rights of others. You know, like if you could think of harassment or doxing or things like that, or, you know, national security, public order, you know, public health. If we think about, you know, COVID-19 disinformation over the past year. So it provides that kind of framework, but it's also a kind of a, a tool for the platforms to say, look, we're doing this in our own governance, when we get demands from governments that go against that kind of framework, we can at least say to them, look, we see our role in part as mitigating human rights harms and protecting the human rights of our users. You're making a demand that would interfere with that. You need to give us more you know, information as to why this is necessary to do. So it's a kind of tool for them as well. So we're now at a, a moment where a number of the large platforms really explicitly talk about incorporating international human rights law standards into their um, operations. I think most prominent for, for listeners is probably going to be the Facebook Oversight Board, which is cited IHRL at length in its decisions, including its decision on Donald Trump's account, which we'll, we'll get to in a bit. But Obviously, you know, this is a bit of a new development. I remember being at a conference with you in in late 2017 when you were first developing this idea to a, a heavily American audience. And I think it's fair to say that there was a, a bit of skepticism. A bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now, you know, here we are. The Facebook Oversight Board is citing international law. It's become really a, a touchstone for a lot of platforms. So what do you think has driven that shift over the last four or so years? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a really good question. And, you know, I imagine there'll be 
Well, I mean, Evelyn's work is touching on this already, but I think there, I mean, there's going to be a rich space for dissertation theses on the, on this as well. I mean, I think I would point to a couple of things. You know, one is, you know, over the last 10 years or so, you know, the major companies, the biggest companies have been participating more and more in the in sort of the global forums for internet governance. You know, so, you know, members from Facebook, Twitter, Google's policy teams and, you know, and Reddit. I mean, it's not just limited to the to those three. GitHub, I mean, I could, there's a whole long list of companies that send their policy people to meetings of, you know, the Internet Governance Forum, uh, RightsCon, you know, this big, you know, more or less civil society driven event that's been happening for the last 10 years or so. And, and I think part of that has been, it's been a kind of socialization into how people around the world see the impact of the platforms and how people, how they can kind of articulate, at least on the civil society side, how people can articulate what they're experiencing online. And those conversations with the companies, I imagine, you know, played a role in influencing the way, you know, those people would come back and bring these ideas back to the company. So I think that that may be one part of it. A second part of it, I think, is something that that Evelyn in her recent piece in Columbia Law Review, congratulations, Evelyn, it's a great piece. Thank you. I think highlights, which is, you know, at the same time that companies were being introduced to the human rights framework, you know, after all, you know, most of them marinated in the First Amendment. Um, and that was there just like, I mean, my framework originally as well for, for speech issues, just as they were sort of learning about human rights and the possibilities of this framework as, as being a useful way of thinking about uh, speech issues online, they also, I think we're getting, you know, significant public pressure and pressure from their users in terms of things like, you know, the kind of content that we often think of as awful, but lawful, right? So harassment, you know, different forms of trolling, then, you know, frankly, you know, illegal content like child endangerment and child exploitation kind of content and, you know, terrorist content, you know, however we define it. So the companies were starting to to grapple with those issues and they saw that, you know, the, the kind of binary and by binary, I don't just mean in terms of the, the consequences of a, you know, account action, but I mean the binary in terms of it's like either either you're allowing speech or you're you know, reducing speech or, or something like that. I think the companies, and again, Evelyn, I think uh, really unpacks this nicely, started to move in this direction of a kind of a, a more of a sliding scale and a proportionality analysis that itself is rooted not in necessarily, at least in First Amendment jurisprudence, but is very much rooted in human rights kinds of jurisprudence. And so those kinds of things collided in a way, they or they intersected, and I think that developed into the space where, you know, companies saw the kind of pressure that they faced, but they also saw that there was this tool out there that allowed them to, you know, both solve certain problems, but also, I think, in a clearer way than simply referring to values or community guidelines or rules, they could refer to these these human rights standards to articulate what they were doing to a broader audience.
So before I, I give you and Evelyn a, a chance to hash it out, I want to ask just one more question to kind of help situate us a little bit, which again, building on my last question is about uh, American skepticism. Uh, so mm-hmm. Americans, I think, often have a sense that IHRL is substantially less speech protective than the First Amendment. There's a, a funny little aside in the recent oversight board decision on Trump's account to a suggestion in in Trump's sort of quasi-brief saying that the board should apply First Amendment norms. Um, And the board kind of takes the opportunity to say, you know, actually, we're going to apply international law standards, but don't worry, you know, in many relevant respects, the principles of freedom of expression reflected in the First Amendment are similar or analogous, as they're phrasing, to the principles of Mm -hmm. freedom of expression under international law. So a couple questions. First off, do you think that the characterization of American skepticism that I've just given is right? And second off, you know, what would you say to Americans who think that incorporating international legal standards into content moderation is just going to, you know, lead the whole thing sort of even more off the rails than it already is, given that skepticism? You know, sh- should Americans mm. be comforted by by the board's uh, assurance there? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, on the the perception, your you know, your perception of American skepticism, I totally agree. I mean, my my view is that Americans don't speak human rights. And so, you know, they see this thing or they have instant, you know, sort of instances in their mind, like examples from history. And, and by history, I mean, like over the last, say, 25 years of, you know, Europeans in particular taking decisions, at, you know, at, at the both the policy and legislative level, but also, you know, at the level of jurisprudence that seem to be preferencing some values over speech. Like the most prominent one is is probably the right to be forgotten, right? And the this idea that, you know, that was adopted by the European Court of Justice in 2014 that that search engines had to be responsive to individuals who claimed that uh, you know, links to their name basically. So if you did a search for a particular person, that if it was if the results were no longer relevant, that that person could ask for that link to be deleted, <laughs> de-indexed, right? So like that kind of sense of, of Europe in particular gives people the idea that basically international human rights law or at least European human rights law is not as protective of, of freedom of expression. And, you know, there is some truth to that. I mean, there is certainly, I mean, to give another example, international human rights law calls on states to prohibit uh, incitement. I mean, essentially the language is to prohibit national racial advocacy of national racial or religious hatred that constitutes incitement to discrimination, hostility, or violence. That's pretty capacious language. It's so capacious that the United States reserved from that language in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights because it felt that it wasn't consistent with the First Amendment. So there are different areas where there could be more restrictions under under human rights law than under the First Amendment. That's undeniably true. The thing is, is that, well, two things. One, in the jurisprudence, particularly at the international level around the International Covenant, but also in certain places in European space, there's been a kind of growing convergence with First Amendment law. I mean, 
human rights law has become more and more respectful, let's say, of speech over time. I mean, the, the Human Rights Committee, which is this body that monitors the international covenant that I just mentioned, which is a treaty that the U.S. has ratified with about 170 other states, this Human Rights Committee adopted a general comment, which is sort of an interpretation of Article 19 of the covenant, which is the freedom of expression provision, that if if you read it, if a First Amendment expert in the United States read it, they would they would be, I think, pretty impressed by the robustness of the statements of both underlying policy of freedom of expression and you know what what role it serves in democratic societies, but also the need to really be narrow in conceiving of restrictions on freedom of expression. So I think there's a kind of convergence there. The other part of it is that, you know, freedom of expression as a human right is simply the, you know, it's the standard, it's the language that is global. You know, it is much more similar, at least in democratic space outside the United States. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, authoritarian governments here, but at least for, you know, rule of law oriented, or maybe we could even say, you know, governments, not just the democratic ones, but ones in the you know, Freedom House, partly free category, they tend to refer to a set of standards that is basically aligned with the human rights standard. So for example, you know, not only do they have perhaps at least on paper, a robust statement of freedom of expression, but they also allow for restrictions, you know, so long as they're you know, provided by law and they're necessary and proportionate to achieve a legitimate objective, you know, like protecting the rights of others or national security or, or something else like that. So for the platforms, I think it's a question of what rules, what standards do they apply given the fact that they are global, that they're not simply American companies. And I think there's there's just more resonance, you know, with the human rights framework, far more resonance than there is with the First Amendment. Okay, so let's get a little bit more specific about some of the critiques of international human rights law in this context. I feel mm-hmm. somewhat bad saying this now after you've been so nice about my work, but I'm one of the people that has been sort of sympathetically skeptical about the idea. And I say sympathetic because I don't have the sort of reflexive American style aversion to international human rights law. I'm actually quite a fan, but I've written about some of the reasons why I'm not sure it's as good a fit here as it necessarily sounds. Um, now, I'm obviously completely outgunned here in making these arguments to you. So I'm basically asking you to humiliate me on on my podcast, but I think it would be good to sort of get down into the nitty gritty a little bit more. Yeah, but just to be be clear, Evelyn, I mean, first off, I think like to just, for me, I like I never would have wanted to just assert human rights and then have no debate. That would have been ridiculous. So I'm really grateful that you're, you know, you're basically doing what you know, what we as certainly as scholars need to do, which is test all of these assertions and hypotheses. So I'm totally grateful. And as you know, I've invited you to, to publish. So I'm, I, there's no, um, just maybe so our listeners understand. I mean, this is a like kind of a shared endeavor in many respects, the way I see it. For sure. I, I volunteer as tribute to be destroyed by you in, in making the case um, or, or, <laughs> in, in that process of, of developing the arguments. So the, the first problem is, is not such a big problem, but is a common objection, which is that international human rights law is written 
primarily for and by states rather than companies. So the International Mm -hmm. Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which we were just talking about, is agreed to by states. And Facebook, for example, is not a party. This raises a couple of... Not yet. Not not yet, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Wow, Uh, 2040, um, Facebook chairing the Human Rights Committee. (laughs) Um, Mark Zuckerberg um, dispensing principles. Okay, fantastic. Love it. This got bleak very fast. (laughs) But the fact that it's currently not a party then means means that the covenant and international law in general doesn't directly bind platforms. Now, the issue of private companies' responsibilities under international law is a much broader problem than content Mm -hmm. moderation, and this has been a debate that's been going on well before this. But can you talk about why that doesn't necessarily sort of cut this argument off at the head before we even get started? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, first off, just to be clear, like if you look through my reporting on this to the to the Human Rights Council when I was special rapporteur or any of my other writing, I never say that you know human rights law as it applies to states can simply be kind of cut and pasted for the platforms. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why there needs to be you know adjustment. The, the most important one being what you just said, which is they're not bound by these rules. You know, so so they don't have an obligation to do so. Uh, so, I mean, just to like on that part, I mean, I think there is a kind of analogizing that the companies need to do when they're thinking about how does human rights law operate in this space. And here I would go to the to a sort of second point, which is, as you mentioned, I mean, there's been this you know very widespread debate over the responsibilities of particularly of multinational companies, but generally of companies that have a human rights impact. I mean, this started, you know, during the years of conflict diamonds in in the 80s and 90s, when, you know, you had multinational companies that seemingly were not subject to any particular jurisdiction's law. And so, you know, what, what kind of principles would govern their behavior when they were, you know, mining conflicts in you know, a place like the Democratic Republic of the Congo or something like that. So so this is, as you say, it's been a longstanding debate over how do we how do we deal with companies that have an impact on human rights? And and so it was about 10 years ago that the Human Rights Council adopted, you know, what's kind of colloquially known as the Ruggie Principles, named after Professor John Ruggie, but more formally, they're the UN's guiding principles on business and human rights. And they basically call on companies to do a kind of evaluation, you know, do due diligence to ensure that they can mitigate or prevent any harms that they cause, human rights harms that they cause in the context of their business. So there's been this movement to get companies to be thinking about the kinds of impact that they have on human rights of users. And when it comes to freedom of expression, you know, I would just, you know, highlight here a little bit of a difference, the difference between First Amendment and uh, and human rights law. I mean, you're absolutely right that human rights law binds states. Um, but there's a difference in the language that I think is actually really interesting. I mean, the First Amendment, as we all know, says, you know, it's directed towards Congress. Congress shall make no law right? Abridging freedom of speech or of the press. And that's that's very clear, right? It is a clear express limitation on, uh, on government. 
you know, it's flipped around in human rights law. Human rights law says, and this is Article 19 of the Covenant, everyone enjoys the right to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas of all kinds, regardless of frontiers through any media. In other words, it flips around things so that it's focused on the individual's right. And, you know, the idea that I think you get out of that, and and also the you know, I I think it, there's a lot of clarity here that you don't get in First Amendment law, at least, you know, just at the high level of, you know, the constituent law, you get the sense that companies, when they think about their products, when they think about their content moderation, when they think about, you know, their algorithmic recommendation systems and their business model and so forth, they should be thinking, does our product, does our rulemaking, does our behavior interfere with the individual's right to do what, you know, what human rights law guarantees them. That's just a way of thinking about human rights law that I think at least moves it a little bit away from this, you know, companies aren't states, which is like, I mean, the most obvious thing in the world in some respects, but it doesn't really get at the impact that they have on user and and the public's rights. So why, in your view, are the Ruggie principles helpful if they're non-binding, right? You know, there's no court Mm -hmm. or international tribunal that I can sue Facebook in for failing to uphold international human rights law. So what what work does pointing to these norms do, in your view? Yeah, I mean, they're they're doing a couple of things. And at some level, they're they're kind of interim. (laughs) You know, they, they were developed at a stage when people are still thinking through how do you constrain, you know, massive companies where there's no there's no particular jurisdiction that has, you know, that can impose their law on them. And so a certain part of it is, and I totally agree, they don't have binding uh, effect on the companies. But part of this is, you know, moving a conversation along and creating a kind of normative expectation that the companies will behave in a certain way. They don't operate on their own accord. I mean, they operate by, you know, special rapporteurs, by civil society, by governments, encouraging the companies to, you know, do the kind of due diligence that the UN guiding principles suggest. And, you know, you could imagine over time, and and actually you're starting to see the possibility of this in in Europe's draft Digital Services Act, that, you know, governments may require some transparency by the companies in terms of what are they doing, what kind of due diligence, what kind of human rights impact assessments are they doing in keeping with the Ruggie principles uh, in order to ensure that they don't have human rights harm. So I think that the work that they're doing is it's normative, but it definitely, definitely requires, you know, other actors to take that and to and to kind of convert it from this non-binding thing into something that has a harder edge to it. But you can't sue on their basis. That's absolutely true. Yeah, <laughs> litigious Americans will be very disappointed, and it would be great to get Mark Zuckerberg on the stand in uh, in the UN, but but not yet, as oh, you said. Good, <laughs> 2040. Good point. I like that. Yeah, 2040. Right. Agenda 2040. Exactly. Dream big. Mm-hmm. 
So the, the second issue raised by the fact that international human rights law is written for states and, and not platforms is what one of the things that you mentioned, which is that we need to adjust it for private parties. And that's mm-hmm. a benefit of international human rights law as it applies to non-state actors, that it can be flexible and make that adjustment. As, as you sort of said, the First Amendment doesn't really have that flexibility. But the problem is that we don't know what that looks like. So, of course, if we applied international human rights law directly to platforms, they would become basically unusable. And it it might be helpful for listeners to explain this through a First Amendment analogy, which, as the Oversight Board noted and we've talked about, can be pretty similar. We've talked on this podcast before about how if platforms were forced to carry everything the government can't ban under the First Amendment, they'd basically become Pornhub or cheap Gucci handbag marketplaces or matchmaking services for Nigerian princes. And the same Mm -hmm. roughly applies under international human rights law. So why should we want international human rights law to apply? So we need to make an adjustment because that's a pretty untenable situation. But the fact that Mm -hmm. That adjustment is effectively indeterminate means that we're still just sort of making it up on the fly, like those principles don't offer as much guidance as we might think. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just a really good framing there and a good way of thinking about this. But, you know, my, my sort of entering point is that we're really early, historically, normatively, sort of in the on, on the road to clarifying how human rights law applies in digital space. I think we're early in that process and I'm I guess I'm comfortable with that. I do believe I think we may have a, a bit of a difference here in terms of the richness of the human rights jurisprudence, what the platforms themselves can draw from in order to understand, you know, different human rights principles or different kind of applications of human rights in new situations. I think there's, you know, there's just a rich jurisprudence that they can draw from to do that. But but I also think that, you know, if the companies are to do this in a transparent way, which is, I think, something that the, the Facebook Oversight Board is doing, but it's limited because it's not that many cases. You know, it's like very, very tip of the iceberg when it comes to all of the different issues that that platforms face, that, you know, if we have transparency as they're doing this, it it also surfaces these kind of debates over the meaning of human rights law, you know, for the public to evaluate. And I just, I'm not sure what the option is at the moment. It's a little bit interim because we don't have anything other than company self-regulation at this point. So I think that, you know, from my perspective, Human rights law provides the framework that allows them to do this. If the companies do this in a way that is public, it also allows them to do it in a way that they can get you know, very serious feedback as to whether they're getting it right or getting it wrong. And I, I just, I think that's, I mean, that's the place where we're at. It's unsatisfying in a lot of ways, but, but it also, I think, provides us with some tools. I mean, just to give one example, I mean, you mentioned a couple examples of you know, the kinds of content that people find, like, generally speaking, distasteful on a platform, or you could think of certain kinds of harassment, right, that, you know, clearly, if we were, you know, in a you know pure First Amendment area, that the government wouldn't have the power to restrict it. The thing that human rights law brings, although, again, the companies need to articulate this publicly, and, you know, 
clearly with reasoning when they do this, human rights law allows you to, to sort of think about, okay, here I am, you know, moderating this forum in digital space, and I want, you know, maximum numbers of people to have access to it, to be able to use it, to not be basically silenced on the platform. And there is some content that clearly is aimed, you know, and some of this is the kind of trolling and kind of coordinated, not always inauthentic, but coordinated, you know, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, racism that may be directed against particular users that may be tolerable under the First Amendment, meaning the, you know, government couldn't restrict it. And yet, in the context of online space, it's an interference with the right of others to participate in that space. That is, that you know, that's a kind of analogizing, it's a kind of you know, taking the human rights framework and trying to apply it in this new context, I don't, I mean, I don't make a claim that it's, it's simple, easy, or uncontested, but I'm not sure I see another option for them right now. What about the parlors of the world that seem to have no interest in international human rights law, you know, like platforms that just don't care about it? Given the this skepticism and some sometimes hostility toward international law that often shows up in the U.S., particularly on the American right, now particularly on the Trumpist right, I kind of wonder whether, you know, this refusal to incorporate international legal principles might end up being a signaling mechanism in a way for these smaller platforms trying to draw right-wing usership. You know, like, look, we, we're not going to moderate your content and we're also not infringing on sovereignty, <laughs> right? Yeah. Is, is there anything that can yeah. be done there? Well, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because you know, these are platforms, I mean, at least I mean, the ones you mentioned, and, you know, and there are others, they're smaller, they all have ultimately, like they may all start like where actually where, you know, Twitter, Facebook and YouTube started, which is like practically no content moderation at all, at least if they, they had content moderation, because obviously content moderation as an idea and as a thing has been with us, you know, since bulletin boards in the 1980s. But, you know, these companies all started with very, very light footprints when it came to, you know, regulating the speech on their platform or moderating it. And they all ended up like through the pressure of, of their users, the pressure of the market, the pressure of governments to, you know, developing to this place where, you know, now you've got, you know, Facebook rules that are like pretty thick. And, I, you know, I think these companies are deceiving themselves. It's, it's kind of a thing for them to say, you know, we're First Amendment absolutists, which is fine. But, you know, let's see how long that lasts. You know, harassment will start up if it doesn't already exist. Trolling will be a thing for them. Behavior that really gets up to the line of illegal content you know, is likely taking place or has taken place and will take place on these platforms. And they're going to have to have responses to them. And so I just don't think we should buy into their their idea that, you know, they're going to be almost like content moderation free zones, because ultimately that's just not tenable for them. I mean, maybe they don't want to grow very much. Maybe they don't want to have much of an impact except for some, you know, insurrection, conspiracy planning. But you know, if they do want to grow, this is the direction they have to go. Now, whether it's human rights is something else. They could just say, 
look, we're, here's, here's our terms of service and X, Y, and Z. And you know, that's fine. They can do that, but it won't be articulable as a set of rules really beyond kind of a, a pretty set community. Like they won't be able to expand their base, let's say, if, if they do that. That's, that's my guess. Now that might be more of a descriptive take on it than anything else, but I think that there's a reason why the large platforms have gravitated towards human rights, which is that human rights you know, fits with their model of being global and having a growth agenda. And that just may not be the same agenda that you have for these smaller kind of niche seeking uh, platforms that you discussed. So let's go back to the point about indeterminacy and make it even more concrete if we can. So I think you're totally fair to note that we're really early on in this process, and that's no real ding against international human rights law. I mean, I don't think there's any legal system or set of norms that have determinacy or have really sorted out how to deal with this whole platform problem yet. Right. True. But let's let's try and push the ball forward a little bit on the on the international human rights law front in in this podcast mm-hmm. where we'll break new ground. So I think advocates for the idea of adopting it sort of generally propose it because they think it'll be a, a check on platforms power as we've discussed. But my concern is that in hard cases, there are so many decisions that a smart person could compellingly argue consistent with international human rights law that it's not much of a constraint. So I like to think of the hypothetical platform lawyer sitting down faced with a hard hate speech case, for example, or trying to decide on whether to err on the side of over-removal or under-removal in mm-hmm. like satire or memes when you know massive scale means that you can't always get every decision perfect. It's not like yeah. she can turn to page 67 of the International Human Rights Law textbook and, and get an answer to those questions because, as you said, we're so early on in the process. And I think maybe a useful concrete example here might be the Trump oversight board decision. So Mm -hmm. one of my frustrations with that decision was that in kicking the ball back to Facebook to not only make the decision about Trump's account, but also develop a world leaders policy, the board basically refused to give Facebook any policy guidance on what it should do. And the response I get to that criticism is, hey, no, the board did give Facebook guidance. It referred to the Rabat plan of action. and. That's a set of principles developed by experts around incitement to hatred and violence. And those principles say you should look at things like context and the speaker's status and the Mm -hmm. extent that the speech will be disseminated and things like that. And all of those are really good things. But I think if you asked 10 lawyers to come up with a policy that considered those things, then you would come up with 20 different policies. So I'm curious if you disagree, because you talked about us having a difference of opinion as to the richness of international human rights law, and especially how we should think about it as applying to private companies as opposed to states. So tell me why I'm wrong. (laughs) Well, it's not that you're wrong. It's that it may not be such, it may not be the problem that you think it is. (laughs) Yeah, let me explain, because, you know, I... I've been a lawyer at the State Department. I've, you know, lawyered at the, like in the UN system. And I totally agree with you that on all sorts of areas of international law, and not just in human rights law, like in a huge array of international legal issues, there's a kind of, you're in a space where there's no right answer, right? There may be the answer that is more compelling to people than other answers, but there's not necessarily a right answer. And 
in many areas of international law, you can't go, you know, like you say, open up the textbook. It's all, you know, you, there isn't necessarily the precedent that speaks exactly or even analogizing way to the situation that you have in front of yourself. So, I, I mean, I agree with that. That I mean, that's that's definitely that's a real thing. But that doesn't mean that there aren't like there aren't you know more compelling and less compelling ways of addressing problems under human rights law, or even that there aren't just more compelling answers than others. And you know, human rights law isn't only about the content decision, right? I mean, it's it's not just human rights law do, doesn't simply say you can restrict speech as long as it's aimed to protect these values or these interests. It's much broader than that. You know, it starts by saying any restriction on speech needs to be provided by law. And that has been articulated and interpreted, you know, both by, you know, by human rights mechanisms in the UN system, but also the European Court of Human Rights, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. I mean, the, the African... Court of Human and People's Rights. I mean, it's really been defined to require not only pre-existing law, but also clarity of law that is, you know, open and available to, you know, to the public, to the person whose conduct might be regulated and so forth. And so what that means to me is that when the companies are making these kinds of decisions, it's not enough just to make the decision. They need to be open and transparent about it so that they can articulate to people basically, you know, the standards that they're adopting and give people an opportunity. And I think this is particularly important at a time when this this whole area is really developing. Give people the opportunity to articulate the counter reason. Give people the opportunity. I mean, scholars like you, the opportunity to say, you know, Facebook decided this world leaders question the wrong way. You know, a human rights law assessment should lead in this direction, not that direction. And over time, you know, my hope is that, you know, we'll develop some institutions that are democratic, not just, you know, these self-regulatory bodies that we're talking about here, but at least some more democratic, transparent oversight of, of these kinds of tools so that we get to a closer, maybe shared sense of what the right answer might actually be in these cases. But but we're in a moment where, you know, it's absolutely the case that you could have a dozen answers to, for every six people. And that's, to me, that's fine. It's, I mean, it does suggest a level of indeterminacy, but I think the same is true. And your point is, is exactly right. That indeterminacy is also a struggle in courts as well. I mean, German courts, the European Court of Human Rights, American courts, I mean, they, they'll, they'll all struggle over these, you know, they all have the same kinds of uh, searching for the right answer based on, in some respects, some analogies, not, you know, clear precedent in many of these areas. So let's pivot a little bit to talk about an area where IHRL is really important um, and determinate, which you, you mentioned right at the beginning of the show, which is in the rising authoritarianism around the world, yeah. and specifically with respect to online speech. Can you describe in a little bit more detail the trend that you're seeing with governments cracking down on speech online? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really, it's, it's depressing. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, governments have all sorts of tools to restrict speech, or at least, you know, to restrict access to speech, to restrict access to information. They've got, you know, the, the extraordinary 
blunt, overbroad tools of, you know, like internet shutdowns, which have been taking place, you know, all over the world, particularly in Africa, in Iran, in Southeast Asia, in, and now in South Asia, you know, in, in the context of Kashmir, India shut down, didn't just shut down the internet for like nine months, but they basically shut down communications for many months a couple of years ago, you know, at the time that India was changing the legal status of, of Kashmir. So, I mean, they have that kind of tool and they, they have all sorts of other tools that are blunt like that, that basically operate against telecommunications companies and internet service providers rather than, you know, the, the content, the social media, the search platforms. But what they do with, with the platforms is, you know, a couple of things. I mean, one, and so these are sort of the trends that we're seeing. And this has been, this has been happening for a while. I mean, one clear trend is just criminalization of users, right? So, you know, you, you post a, or even like a tweet or Facebook post, you know, there, there are people in Bahrain who are, who've been in prison for a decade for doing that. But the, then, they, you know, going a little further, they put pressure directly on the platforms and they're, they have, a, you know, a bunch of different tools. You know, one tool that they have is making demands. Sometimes they could be legal demands. So they could be demands that, you know, use their courts to basically to order platforms to take down content or to take down or you know, deactivate user accounts um, using their law. Um, sometimes they'll use extra legal tools, you know, their Ministry of Information and Technology, you know, or, or Ministry of Public Security. Somebody will pick up the phone, call, you know, if they can find the number. It's funny because oftentimes, you know, they'll call like a general number at, at Twitter or something like that. And, you know, they'll make a demand for a takedown, you know, outside of any, any rule of law. So those are some of the pressures that companies generally face, but it's gotten, you know, much worse over recent years. I mean, for the last 10 years or so, we've seen this rising demand by governments to locate, you know, their citizens or people within their jurisdiction, their information, their data, you know, on their territory. And this is a problem in authoritarian states where, you know, a place like Russia, where, you know, if, if user data is held in, in on Russian territory, it's basically saying that it's open season on that data for Russian authorities to get access to. I mean, the problem is that, you know, European, so democratic countries are also making the same kinds of demands of the companies for different reasons, right? They, they think that, you know, our privacy protections in the United States are, are weaker and they also find the, the legal assistance process to be cumbersome and time consuming. They'd rather have you know, access to that, even if they're using rule of law tools, judicial tools, you know, to have that on their territory. And then the last one that I'd mention is, you know, governments are increasingly making demands that the platforms have legal representation. Like they have, a, they actually have personnel on the ground in their country. Turkey did this with a new law last year. And, you know, pretty quickly, uh, Google consented to that. I mean, they already had somebody in Turkey, but they announced that they were going to comply with that law. And, you know, after that, it was just sort of, you know, the dominoes fell and everybody, all the companies decided to have local representation. And that that's obviously just another form of pressure. It's one thing for, you know, Turkey to demand that Wikipedia take down several 
you know, several pages related to Ataturk and, and other issues and for Wikipedia to refuse. And then Wikipedia is just shut down. I mean, Turkey geoblocked Wikipedia in, um, in Turkey. And it's another thing to say, if you don't comply with our, our demand, we're going to arrest, you know, hold hostage uh, your employee. So those are some of the things that are taking place right now. I mean, there's a whole range of other things around regulation we could talk about too, but those are some of the kind of the authoritarian oriented approaches that, that are just getting worse. Yeah, the trend of the, the hostage taking laws is certainly especially concerning. One of the things that's sort of really interesting about them and, and important to keep the eye on is that they sound so reasonable, right? Like if you want to mm-hmm. operate in our country, you need to have some local representative within our jurisdiction so that we can serve notices on them. And, yep. you know, if, if Germany or the US required such a thing, you'd go, well, well, sure, that just sounds like an ordinary legal requirement. But of yep. course, in the context of an authoritarian crackdown, they're doing exactly what you say, which is they are sort of increasing their leverage over the companies to make them accede to demands. And so I think maybe let's let's get a little bit concrete and pause on the case of India, because to my mm-hmm. mind, that's the most important battle for freedom of expression online in the world right now, given, you know, it's ostensibly the world's largest democracy, but it's really sort of cracking down and requiring platforms to take down speech critical of the government in the context of a public health emergency, which is pretty much as core political speech as you can mm-hmm. imagine. And just this week, the government, you know, went to Twitter's Indian offices over a manipulated media label it had applied to tweets from members of the the ruling political party, the the BJP. And it's sort of just really escalating. And I think there are a lot of people that think this is a really simple question, right? Like platforms should just not accede to government demands to take things down. They should keep applying these labels. But I think it's a little bit more complicated than the general discourse tends to understand. Like Mm -hmm. if the government is threatening local employees with jail time, there's human rights at stake there too that the mm-hmm. companies have owe to their employees. And it's also mm-hmm. not clear to me that a India without Twitter completely, even a partially censored one, is necessarily a better world given how important Twitter in particular has been for raising awareness around the severity of the pandemic right now and even for locals trying to find things like oxygen and other support. Right. This, this strikes me as a, like a massive geopolitical problem that in some senses is way over platforms pay grade and meanwhile the US government just seems to be you know maintaining essentially silence so I guess do you Mm -hmm. agree with my sort of characterization (laughs) of that as as a bit more complicated than the general discourse and and what should platforms or governments be thinking about doing here yeah I mean absolutely it is complicated for for the platforms I mean but but there's steps they should be taking um, at the same time that that we all, I mean, I think the public needs to recognize that they are put into really difficult situations. I mean, your Twitter is obviously the central example. And it's, it's interesting, right? Because, you know, Twitter, it's not like it's got this huge user base in India, but it's enormously influential. You know, like all journalists use it. And of course, all of, and Modi uses it himself, right? So, you know, it, it is an important tool. And, and that, that goes, I mean, before I get to some of the things that the companies can do, that does color a bit my reaction to the argument that, well, if, 
if the companies don't comply, then they'll be shut down, right? That they'll, they'll be denied access. Denial of access for Twitter would be a huge, I mean, it would be a self-owned by Modi. I mean, it is an important tool for him. I mean, just as, you know, Twitter was for the former guy, you know, for Donald Trump, you know, it's, it's the same for Modi. So there's, there's going to be this kind of countervailing pressure in part because of Modi, in part because Twitter is very popular, like among, you know, those who are focused on, on governance in India, you know, on all sides of, or across the spectrum. Let's say so. I'm not so sure that you know it, it's it's more the it's probably the case in other countries that rather than India that if Twitter simply pushes back they'll be shut down. I, I don't I don't necessarily see that happening. But there are things that companies should be doing like before they enter markets they should be doing you know due diligence assess the situation is their platform. This was certainly something that Facebook should have done before go, becoming popular. Uh, in Myanmar, right? Like when they're popular in place, what what does that mean for you know the local population, for societies, for problems, in, you know, ethnic problems or government repression? And you know, Facebook was really abused as a as a tool for ethnic cleansing uh, of the Rohingya community a few years back. And and Facebook kind of knew it, but they didn't really do the due diligence that involves not just saying what what does it mean to enter? But also, what are we going to do if we get into this situation? You know, what steps are we going to take when we get unlawful demands? Do we just comply? Do we, you know, make sort of a counter demand that it come through, you know, a judicial order, um, which might mean nothing in an authoritarian place, but it might mean something, you know, in a place like India, where you know, a lot of the requests are coming from a ministry. They're not coming through the courts. So, you know, there are things that the platforms should be doing. And, and I think at the same time, as they're doing those things, there should be support from democratic countries, you know, basically support that recognizes, you know, we're sort of in a moment where, you know, the platforms are like the most evil thing in the world. And so, you know, for, for democratic governments, to support Twitter or Facebook or YouTube just seems it's not something that they're going to do these days, but they should because these platforms as, you know, problematic as they might be on all sorts of levels, you know, around the spread of disinformation on harassment on, you know, just the, the overall attention economy, they also are really valuable tools for access to information in much of much of the world where you've only got, or you increasingly have state-dominated media. So, you know, I just think there needs to be more support for them in addition to the companies doing uh, their own thing in a, you know, in a more careful and deliberative way. That's a great transition to the, the question I wanted to close with, <laughs> yeah. which was asking you, you know, what you thought the role of democracies is here in terms of the, the rhetoric and the language that democratic governments use to ask platforms to do better, right? I mean, yeah. do democracies have a duty to think more carefully about their rhetoric here? Or is that just kind of asking them to, you know, to pull their punches um, in a space where there are genuinely real problems in how the platforms govern themselves? Yeah, I was a rhetoric major in college, so I have no problem with rhetoric. 
just to be clear, I don't, I know it shows it David. A dirty, it's like a dirty word, but it shows, Oh, I'm not sure that's a good thing. You know, I, so I'm not as concerned with the rhetoric, although sometimes it can be really problematic as much as I'm concerned with the, the actual, you know, legislative and other kinds of proposals that often come from uh, democratic space, right? So, you know, NetsDG, the Network Enforcement Act in Germany that was adopted a few years ago, you know, it has some really good transparency requirements on the large companies, but it imposes these penalties on the companies, you know, if they fail to, you know, appropriately and systematically address alleged violations of German law. It's like 22 different areas of, of German law that it, that it relates to. That's really, you know, problematic for a couple of reasons, but like the main one in in terms of thinking of the relationship between democracies and, you know, and authoritarian governments and and what they're kind of signaling to them is it suggests that sanction and the potential for overregulation is okay. Like the potential demands of government for the companies to comply with local law, particularly when it's basically saying to the companies that you make these decisions without, you know, legal, like our legal system involved in that, I think it'd be really problematic in terms of, you know, moving these decisions into this private, non-democratic space. And, and it also enables much more pressure from state actors on government because there's this looming, you know, penalties that might be imposed. So, like, so to my mind, I mean, that's just one example. I mean, the the rhetoric part is definitely stronger in areas like the terrorist content regulation in Europe, where, you know, basically the rhetoric, but also it was attached to, you know, to non-binding and then binding legislative proposals in the European Commission was just, you know, kind of over the top in terms of saying the platforms need to get rid of extremism and terrorism with really pretty bad, overbroad definitions of those terms. And that just, that as a rhetorical matter, but also as a legal matter, feeds into, you know, a government like Egypt, right, or Turkey, that, you know, by law is redefining a lot of fundamental rights as terrorism, journalism, it's terrorism, reporting on the Kurds, it's terrorism, right, Um, reporting negatively on our COVID response, that's false information that has to be restricted. So there's a lot of, of kind of signaling and messaging that's really problematic. I just, I think that it's mostly about the actual proposals that are being adopted, even though, I mean, you're right, the rhetoric is a problem as well. Well, all of that is even more bleak than Zuckerberg <laughs> as the Secretary General of the UN in, in 2040. And I want to mm. clarify as well that I definitely meant the rhetoric comment as a as a compliment because you're just such an <laughs> eloquent uh, expositor of, of uh, how all of these things sort of apply and how we should think about these things, which is why we're very grateful for you taking the time to come on today, David. Thank you. Thanks, Evelyn. Thanks, Quinta. Really enjoyed it and love the work that you're both doing. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Ian Enright. 
And our producer is Jen Pachehowell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.